Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. My guest is K.J. Sanchez, who is the co-adapter and director of Romeo e. Juliet, which is at Cal Shakes California Shakespeare Theater, The Bruns, May 25th through June 19th. Her co-adapter is Karen Zacarias, who is also credited as the writer, and K.J. Sanchez is credited as the director. You are currently an associate professor at the University of Texas in Austin and head of the MFA directing program, and you've been an actor, director, and playwright. But let's start by talking about Romeo e. Juliet. Now, you said before we went on the air that this project has been in the works for a long time. Uh, from Karen, correct? Yeah, it has. Karen started working on a bilingual Romeo and Juliet several years ago for another theater company in Chicago. And for various reasons, it got put on a back burner as Karen's career exploded. In the last few years, she's been one of the most often produced playwrights, living playwrights in the country. And um, she got really busy. Eric Ting, artistic director of Cal Shakes, had heard that she had worked on this bilingual version of Romeo and Juliet. And he asked her if she was interested in finishing making the adaptation. And she said, absolutely. And I had been here, had such a wonderful time in the Bay Area and working with Cal Shakes directing Quixote Nuevo. And so Eric asked the two of us if we'd be interested in working together on this. And I leapt at the chance because I've been a huge fan of Karen Zacarias's for a very long time. So she and I started working on it. Our intention was that it was going to be produced in the season right before the pandemic, the season that got canceled. Though it was canceled, we continued to work on it. We workshopped it online and she and I would get on Zoom and read uh, Shakespeare's play to each other and then read her writing to each other and just go through the whole play line by line over the course of the last two years and change. And now here we are finally able to get it on the stage and share it with audiences. You also said that the gender change, making Romeo female, uh, you said that came at the casting level? Yeah, yeah. Up to that point, we had not even thought of changing any of the genders at all. And when we were auditioning, we saw a lot of good actors for all of the roles but we were noticing that, you know, the play has only three female identifying characters in it. And there were so many really, really strong women that were coming in and just really killing the language. It was an epiphany for me. During casting, I just thought, I wonder what it would sound like to hear Romeo's text read by a woman. And uh, so we asked a few of the actors who were coming for callbacks to read it. And the language really flew and it got really exciting. And one of the challenges for when we produce Romeo and Juliet today is I think it is hard to see these choices that these two people make 
in our given circumstances now, we would think, oh, these kids have other options. Why do they think that this is their only option? And so my job as a co-adapter and director was to put as much pressure on the characters as possible, build a pressure cooker in the given circumstances and the situation we put them in so that we really understand that these characters have no choice. And so earlier on, we had decided to set it in 1848 in this area, Alta California, which was also a pressure cooker at that time. And then two women falling in love was even harder then. And so it just felt like it was giving um, the play, the context it needed so that the stakes were as high as possible. Did you adjust the words so that the gender part of the story is suddenly in the story? Or are you using more Shakespeare and the audience has to get that that's there? We have changed all of the pronouns to she, her, and Aya. We decided to really embrace our adaptation. We're we're honoring Shakespeare's text, and it's really a marriage of Shakespeare's text and Karen's writing in Spanish. And the Spanish and English is beautifully feathered together. And the only major artistic liberty we took, two artistic liberties we took, one was changing the pronouns. And then the other was Karen was able in her poetry in Spanish to actually clarify the story. So I think that for some of the audience, the language is actually going to be more clear rather than more dense. You said 1848 is a pressure cooker in Alta, California, and I'd like to ask why. When Karen and I first started talking three, four, I don't remember, three or four years ago, the first question we asked was, where should we set it so that we have this pressure cooker? And we considered a lot of different places because where it's set determines the rules by which Karen flips English to Spanish. You know, if it was set today in LA, there would be English colloquialisms that would inform when characters are speaking Spanish and when characters are speaking English. So we shopped around a lot of different times and places. And then we landed on Alta California, 1848, because there was such history and constant state of violence in this area at that time. Um, first, we had the indigenous peoples whose land was stolen by Spain. And then we had the Mexican War of Independence in which Mexico took this land from Spain. And then we had the U.S. invasion. And 1848 is right after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. And the U.S. has just invaded. And so the Capulets and the Montagues are these old families. And the pressure cooker is that the prince... Um, and Paris are U.S. cavalry officers. And so at the beginning, when the Capulets and Montagues are fighting and the prince comes in, who's U.S. cavalry, the new government, and he says to them, watch your P's and Q's, you're all in trouble. And if you keep fighting, there are going to be consequences. Our characters, especially Father Capulet, understands that he has everything to lose if he doesn't watch his P's and Q's. Because we know that at that time, the U.S. found every possible excuse to take land that was guaranteed in the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo. You know, there are cases and cases of that happening in all of what was formerly known as New Spain. And so Capulet's pressure on Juliet is very, very real because Juliet is marrying into this new uh, American government. 
And so when he says, you know, do this or die on the streets, you're dead to me. It means something because he's trying to save his land, his family and his entire future. And then on top of that, of course, comes the gender, which (laughs) is not going to go over well with anybody. Exactly. And so they have to keep this secret. It explains why they feel so desperate and so backed into a corner. Are there super titles? Nope. Nope. So those of us who don't speak Spanish, we're going to just have to kind of deal with it. Well, it's a cool trick we've done that Karen has done, not we. Karen has done this in a genius way. She has written the Spanish in certain moments where the given circumstances are so clear, you're going to know exactly what is going on. It's also a story we all know, and there's a synopsis in the um, program, both in English and Spanish. And we've had people come in who only speak English and people who only speak Spanish. And the given circumstances are such that I feel very confident that all audiences will know what's going on, even if you're not understanding the four or five words in that one sentence, you'll understand the context and you'll have the other words in that sentence that are in English so you can know what's what's happening. It's a live action Duolingo exercise. You'll actually walk away learning some Spanish. KJ Sanchez, when we were originally going to do this last week, you were still rehearsing indoors at the Berkeley Rep offices down in West Berkeley, and then now you've moved over to the Bruns. This is being recorded before it opens. What were the specific challenges you found when moving into the outdoor space at the Bruns that maybe you didn't anticipate or maybe something that worked better when it was finally on stage? Yeah, I've, thanks. That's a great question. There there have been no challenges at all, aside from when we're rehearsing during the day, the sun is bright. And so the stage, the, the floor of the stage gets very, very hot. So when the actors are doing fights and dying, the actor who plays Tybalt, we had to figure out a way to put something under his head because his head was getting too hot laying on the, on the floor of the stage. But other than that, it has just made the production better and better because there's a there's a recurring motif in the entire play about nature. Every character talks about the stars. Friar Lawrence has all of these beautiful monologues about how each herb has medicinal qualities and poisonous qualities, depending on how you use it. And na- nature is such a major motif. And then with us casting a woman as Romeo, our theme for the production is the tension and the desperation between the disparity between what is natural and what is enforced. And so being in nature, seeing these two women trying to be their natural selves has been absolutely stunning. And in the middle of uh, running a scene, we'll hear coyotes howling in the distance, or we're seeing the stars when Juliet says, and when I die, take her and place her in little bits in the, in the sky and, and, and she'll shine so bright. So it's just made everything that we've been doing so much better. It's just my favorite venue to work in. Speaking of the the venue, when you start the play, it's light out. And by the time you finished, of course, it's dark. How do you as a director take advantage of that specifically in terms of lighting, in terms of how the play is being put across? Yeah. Russell Champa, who's the lighting designer, is is one of the best lighting designers there is today. 
And he's making beautiful use of it. And it's so in line with the play too, because once they get married, Juliet's waiting for Romeo to show up. And she says, uh, gallop pace you fiery footed steeds towards Phoebus lodging, meaning hurry up sunset, because when you, when the sun sets and there's darkness and we can uh, express our love under the cover of of La Noche, that's when the sun is starting to set. So it's pretty magical. That's great. Of course, you never know what the weather's going to be like at the Bruns. Sometimes it's warm and clear, and sometimes it's cloudy and chilly. Yeah, it's an adventure. And I think that we're all embracing the sense of adventure in the entire thing. There's some incredible swashbuckling fights in it. And the whole thing just feels like, I I, I guess the word adventure is the one that just keeps coming to mind. Bring your blankets, bring a bottle of wine, bring your sunscreen, and, uh, you know, we'll all just enjoy being in nature. Before we move on to your career and working in Texas, which is not a good place to be at the moment, one other question in terms of collaboration when you're talking on Zoom, when you're creating this, how did it work? Did you write a section and bring it to her? Did she write a section and bring it to you? How did that work? My job was to help us both understand the Shakespeare. So my job was to, you know, research every line and how that what that line meant, what it meant when Shakespeare wrote it, what it means to us today. And then my job was to make cuts in Shakespeare's original text so that we could get it down to its lean, sort of action-packed version. But Karen did all of the writing. I never suggested lines. I would just talk about what this moment needed, what the mood was, what was the intention, what are the colors that have to be in this scene. And then she did all of the writing. That's why we're credited as co-adapters, but she's very much credited as the writer. But that also means it's a little bit easier for you as director because you were taking notes the whole time and you had those notes when you met up with the actors. Oh, yeah, yeah. This play is in my bones and in my bones in a very deep way because when I was 25, I played Juliet in a production John Jory directed at Actors Theatre of Louisville. It was one of my very first professional jobs and that this play's lived in me for a very, very long time. I want to go back to your comment about Texas. I respectfully disagree that it's a bad place to be right now. I'm very proud that I'm in Texas because my voice matters much more than it matters here. Greg Abbott is absolutely insane. And it's so frustrating to see how a very, very small majority is running the state only because of how districts were rigged. But aside from that, Texas is a beautiful state. And Texans are really beautiful people. And the cities in Texas are all incredibly diverse. I mean, Houston is the most diverse city in the country. It's also one of the greatest places to just visit for a weekend and eat at all of these incredible like Chinese, Vietnamese, Cajun fusion restaurants. The landscape's gorgeous. I love working at UT Austin and I have great colleagues. So you know, when people say like, oh, and I run into a lot of people in the Bay Area that's like, oh, you live in Texas, you poor thing, how horrible. I say to them what I just said to you, which is like, actually, living in Texas came out of the blue. I never thought I would. I lived in New York for 25 years. And this job sort of landed in my lap being a, a running the MFA directing and playwriting programs. But I love Austin. Austin's deeply super liberal and blue. 
And I do think that being there matters. And I do see a sea change coming. And it's not coming as fast as any of us want, but I do, I do see it. And, you know, and people are taking note. People are taking note of the hijinks around the blockade to investigate all of the trucks coming up across the border with produce and how many people lost millions and millions of dollars. People are noticing um, the mismanagement of our energy system. You know, the, we had the freeze in Austin where we didn't have heat or water for a week. People are noticing that the cost of living is going up. And it's all because of these stunts that the governor is attempting only to, to sort of carve out his profile as Trump part two. Is there any chance O'Rourke might win? Well, hope springs eternal. KJ Sanchez, I'd like to talk a little about your career. You raised in New Mexico. What prompted you to become an actor? Because that was the first step in your career. Yeah, it was all a system of happy accidents. And I guess if I ever wrote an autobiography, it'd be called Too Dumb to Know Better because I just sort of stumbled into it and I didn't know that there was like a process and there was a way you were supposed to do it. I was actually, so I'm the last of 12 kids born on a ranch and didn't see theater. We didn't grow up as a big reading or theater going or museum going family because we were all very busy. My family's parents were very busy running a ranch and raising 12 kids and running a whole lot of other businesses along the way. And my first play that I saw was a play I was in as a senior in high school. But I was a ballet flocorico dancer, a Mexican folk dancer from the age of 13 until my freshman year of college. My brother Alan had a crush on one of the ballet flocorico dancers in this dance company in Albuquerque. And as an excuse to spend time with her, he would take me to dance classes. <laughs> and, and he started dancing too. And so he and I danced in this company for many, many years. And I fell in love with performing there. And then I started through the dance company. I started working with this little company in Albuquerque called Teatro El Teatro de Albuquerque. But I was planning on being a physical therapist. And a professor from UC San Diego did a workshop at this little community theater company in Albuquerque. I was a sophomore in college at University of New Mexico. And he gave me his card and said, if you ever want to study acting, give me a call. And I did. And I applied for a transfer and I got it. And I transferred to UC San Diego as an undergrad, was still planning on being a physical therapist. As an undergrad, I was in a production and the graduate program invited me to audition for the MFA program. Still too dumb to know better. I thought, oh, great. I'll do this MFA program because they had a fellowship for a Latina like me. So I figured, oh, I'll do this MFA program and then I'll graduate and I'll still be a physical therapist. And then when I was in grad school, I had the good fortune of meeting Anne Bogart before she started the city company and another very fine director, Robert Woodruff, and really just stumbled into it. And when Anne said, I'm starting this company, would you like to join? My first thought was like, sure, that sounds fun. And at some point, I'll still go back to doing physical therapy. <laughs> and, and you know, she started this company and we traveled the world performing in Bogota, Colombia and in Japan and all over the place in New York. It just sort of progressed from there. And then I was, one of the last performing gigs I did was I played, I originated the role of Thyona in Big Love, which Les Waters directed. And we did it uh, at many theaters, including here at Berkeley Rep. 
And it was during that process that I was talking to Les and saying like, I get sad when the show opens because we're not in rehearsal anymore. And I enjoy being in the audience watching tech rather than being on the stage. And he was the one that told me, face it, darling, you're a director, not an actor. And I came out as a director. And when I came out to the cast and said, Les says I'm a, thinks I'm a director, they said, we think that's right because you're a really bossy actor. You did manage, according to IMDb, to get yourself into a couple of episodes of Law and & Order and one episode of ER. Yeah, that's right. I worked a lot as an actor. I did, I did a television show called The Apollo Comedy Hour, which was a late night sketch comedy show did some films, and I did a lot of voiceover work. I, do, I did a lot of mommy characters in the cartoons Dora the Explorer and Go Diego Go. How was doing voice for these cartoons? Great. Such a great job. And because I came to directing very late, those residual checks funded my transition from being an actor. You know, I was able to pay my rent and eventually my mortgage from being a voiceover actor while I was producing my own plays, getting started as a director. What is it, American Records? American Records is my theater company, and the mission is to make work that chronicles our time, work that serves as a bridge between people. And as a playwright, I do documentary theater. You did a play called Co-Author of Re-Entry, which was based on interviews with returning veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan? That's right. My... Uh, Co-writer Emily Ackerman and I interviewed Marines returning from combat deployment, and we thought we were writing a play for theater. We got a commission to do so. It opened and it ran off Broadway, and it was at many theaters all over the country. And then something strange happened, which was someone from the military saw it, uh, a military leader who was in charge of the Marine Corps Combat Operational Stress Control, which is essentially a group of military leaders and psychiatrists and chaplaincy trying to figure out how to manage um, post-traumatic stress when Marines are returning to combat over and over and over again. This was at the very beginning of the wars. And we had a cup of coffee after he saw the show and he said, we're putting together a conference for military leaders about moral injury and combat stress if you could get your group to San Diego for this conference, would you perform as the keynote address? And too dumb to know better, I said, sure. So we performed it. And in the front row were just shoulder to shoulder generals. Um, it was full of about a thousand military leaders. And the favorite phone call I ever got in my life was right after that presentation, I got a message on my phone. And the message was, Ms. Sanchez, this is Command Sergeant Major Leon Thornton of Quantico. We would like to bring your play to our base. Please advise. And I called him back and they hired me and American Records to do the play at Quantico for officers in training. That went well. And long story, as short as I can, it led to me contracting with the Department of Defense for about seven years, and we did the play at over 50 military bases here and in Europe for thousands and thousands of troops returning from combat deployment. Was that during the Obama years then? It was during both. We began under Bush and continued under Obama. And it was really funny because there's a line in the play, one of the, one of the characters says, uh, we're the arm of the people. We go, we do what the people tell us to, to do. If you don't like it, 
stop uh, electing, he uses an expletive, uh, stop electing assholes who don't know what they're doing. And when Bush was the president, there would be like a knowing chuckle from Dems and progressives. And when Obama was president, there'd be a knowing chuckle from conservatives and Republicans. And the line always remained the same. KJ Sanchez, how do you teach directing? You don't. (laughs) You can't. (laughs) My job is just simply to give them as many opportunities to practice directing as they can and to see their work in front of audiences so that they can understand. You know, I advise and I offer a lot of questions of what do you want to say? What matters to you in this world? What work are you drawn to? And what I'm trying to do is 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 help playwrights and directors find the most nestness of their work. So all of us at UT, our, our, our passion is to resist the temptation to make acolytes, but rather to help artists. And most artists that come to UT are mid-career artists that are honing craft that they already have a pretty great capacity with. Sometimes when I talk to directors and they go into the nuts and bolts of what they're doing in a show, they're making connections between one part of a show and another. They're changing the lighting. They're doing all these things which have, for them, real meaning. But for me, when I'm just watching it, I'm not necessarily conscious of that. Is that pretty normal then? I mean, that, that this stuff is going on, even if we don't catch it? Absolutely. Because I think that we're, all, we're, we're absorbing information in a visceral way all of the time. And so, you know, I, I left the theater last night at one o'clock in the morning, and we do these late, late rehearsals because we need, the, we need darkness to practice the lighting and the timing. And, you know, we'd, we would spend maybe 20 minutes just on the timing of the last word of a sentence the footstep of the actor timing their their footstep to the moment the sound starts to the moment the lights change and we're spending 20 minutes on something that is 1 second long and you're absolutely right the audience doesn't notice that but what i think the audience walks away with was a viscerally igniting show they may not know oh it's because of the timing of the footstep and the lights and the music starting but what you do feel is sort of like a tingly thing viscerally when a show is working well. And from what I've talked to directors, that very, very first time, well, there's also tech. You get some information out of tech, but that very, very first preview is extremely important because that's when you kind of learn what works and what really doesn't. <laughs> yes. Uh, the hardest thing for a director to do, I think, I think the thing that separates the scaredy cats from the brave ones is sitting in a, an, in a preview and actually watching the audience and paying close attention to where they're bored, where they're entertained, where they lean in, where they sit back in their seats. And that's hard. It's hard on your ego because you fall in love with this show And then you look at it and say like, oh, they're really confused here or, oh, they're bored here. And maybe that's what I do teach or try to encourage students to do is watch your audience with very clear eyes. And that's how you learn what the show is that you actually have made. 
What are some of the cues that an audience will give you in that first preview specifically? Where they laugh, where they gasp. When you see heads roll, you know, when your neck is stiff and you roll your head to get rid of a stiff neck, that's always a sign that they're thinking about something that's not the show. So you can kind of tell. Yeah. When someone is on stage, how aware are they if someone in the audience is kind of starting to nod out? Oh, completely aware. I mean, actors are magnificent artists. To be an actor is to be an emotional astronaut. And one of the things that makes great actors great is they have these extraordinary like internal GPS systems or radar and, a, and an and actors can feel every move in the audience. You feel people sigh. You feel people look away when, you know, when something happens in the back row of a theater, even if you're facing upstage and you're not even looking out or you can't see because of the lights, you know what's going on because you can feel it because they have this like extra sensory radar happening when they're on stage. Do you, after that first or second preview, do you sit down with the actors and just say, what did you see that I might have missed? Yeah, yeah. And also, what do you? What happened backstage that we need to make better for you as well? Because, you know, they walk off stage, the character is like walking slowly, taking their time. And then the minute that they pass the, the, the set and get behind the stage... They run as fast as they can to their quick change and they get a new wig and they put on a new coat and then they run back and they're out of breath. And the minute they step on stage, again, the character is fully calm and relaxed as if they've been off somewhere sipping tea. <laughs> I wish sometimes that audiences could see the show that happens behind the set because it's pretty remarkable. KJ Sanchez, what are you working on now beside... By the time audiences see the show after previews, you're going to be gone. It's true. I leave the morning after opening, which is always so sad. You walk away and then you become irrelevant and the stage manager takes over running the show. The actors know exactly what to do and you're just reading performance reports every night. But luckily I have some other things to, to um, keep my mind off of how much I'm going to miss this company and this show. I'm going to Colorado to the Colorado New Play Festival in Steamboat Springs. They're producing a workshop of a play that I'm writing. It's an adaptation of Thoreau's Walden. That is a commission with the Alliance Theater in Atlanta, Georgia. So the Alliance Theater artistic leadership and I are going to this New Play Festival to work on, on this play that I'm writing. I'm also halfway through writing a book called The Radical Act of Listening, which is about what I've learned from my years as a documentary theater maker about listening and what it does to the listener and what it is doing to the person being listened to and how important it is that when we listen, we say to someone, we see you, we hear you, you matter. And I'm also in pre-production for, in November, we're going to open Isaac Gomez, a playwright, has written a one-woman Christmas carol called What a Christmas. It's set in Texas and it's being produced by the Alley Theater in Houston. And it's about a Latina woman working the overnight shift in a Whataburger and gets visited by all the ghosts of her past. KJ Sanchez, in terms of being a director and being a playwright, how do you let go as a playwright when someone else is picking up your work 
because you're also a director and in your head, you've already seen the production. Mm-hmm. That's true. 80% of the time I direct the plays that I write. And then when I'm not directing it, I've had the really good fortune of having excellent directors direct my plays. And so I just need to set aside my own expectations for what it's going to look like and let the director take the lead. It's always a struggle. Tony Tacconi directed a play of mine, X's and O's, which was about uh, the football concussion crisis at Berkeley Rep. And his production looked very different from a production that I would have directed. But I was very, very happy with the direction that he took the play. And his production taught me so many things about the play. So it's a, I think the the act of working in theater is a dance between relinquishing, letting go of your ego so that you can trust your collaborators and then having enough ego to know when you have to step forward and say, no, I know what it needs to be. And people should listen to my instincts here and I should listen to my instincts. So it's this complicated dance where you're constantly supporting your ego and then figuring out ways to set it aside. KJ Sanchez, when you talked about Texas and you talked about how you have more of a voice in Texas, how do you use that voice? Rallies. I call Ted Cruz about twice a week. (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Showing up to vote, helping other, encouraging other people to vote. There's all this mythology around universities and colleges and professors, right? From, from the right, we're seen as these activists. And from the left, we're seen as like maybe sellouts if you're working for, you know, in, in, in certain ways. But I think that the best thing I can do is teach students how to understand information and how to track what is true and what is not. I teach an undergraduate class that's not in the Department of Theater and Dance, but is actually through undergraduate uh, studies. And I teach this for each year for 50 undergraduate students who are in all of the other colleges in the School of Business and in School of Engineering. And the class is called Spectacle as a Political Tool. And we look throughout history at moments in which spectacle was used to move people to action, to do good and to do harm. And my hope is that I encourage them to be, I I help them find ways to be analytical. I help them find ways to understand what is uh, primary source, what's secondary source, and how to research any website you go to to figure out if this is a person you should be listening to or not. And I think that's the best thing I can do in Texas. You've been listening to an interview with K.J. Sanchez, who is the director and co-adapter with Karen Zacarias of Romeo e. Juliet, which is playing at Cal Shakes, California Shakespeare Theater, The Bruins, May 25th to June 19th. For more information, you can go to calshakes.org. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>